Well, open your Bibles this morning to the book of Hebrews and the second chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter 2. And I'm going to read beginning in verse 5 down through verse 9 of Hebrews chapter 2. Then our focus will be particularly on the ninth uh, verse this morning. But Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You've made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And let us pray. Father, again, we come before thee and thank you that you listen to us. I, I thank you for the just the great privilege we've had of worshiping thee and each one that you have been pleased to bring here this morning. And in these moments, I again would pray for the, the, the clear, unmistakable help of your Holy Spirit to bring forth your, your holy word, especially about such holy themes in a, in a way that honors thee and reflects your desire and your purpose. And I pray that you would open all of our hearts to, to glory uh, in the cross and what you have done for us in and through your Son. So might, um, might the remainder of our time all just be a, a, a benediction to thee for what you have done for us and what your Son endured, that we would have glorious, pure, eternal life in him. So we just commit our time to thee, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last time we were in Hebrews, we looked at, at verses 5 through 8, and I uh, observed that there was a, a resuming here of the theme of the superiority of the person of Christ over angels. Um, and this point was made in regard, especially in the world to come. You see that at the, right at the beginning of verse 5, where it says, For he did not subject to angels the world to come. And then we saw that the great interpretive challenge in this particular section, verses 6 through 8 are a quote from Psalm chapter 8. And the great challenge is, does that refer to man or does that refer to the person of Christ? And as I indicated, a really good case can be made that it does refer to the person of Christ. And we notice here that some of the descriptions, like crowned with glory and honor in verse 7, is unquestionably applied to the person of Christ in verse 9. And, and so it's very easy to argue for that position, which uh, is being sensitive to the context, which is always a good thing to do. So I'm very sympathetic to one who would understand it that way. Nevertheless, to kind of... Um, condense the thought here. I'm of the opinion that verses 6 through 8 do refer to man. Really, the main reason is that when you refer 
when you read those words in Psalm chapter 8, there, there's no reference to the Messiah, but they do refer to man and, and the sovereignty that he is to exercise over creation. This was God's initial purpose for man, that he would exercise sovereignty over creation. And a text that I read before brings us out, Genesis chapter 1, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, let, him, let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them and God blessed them and God said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth subdue it rule over it excuse me and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth However, that intended design uh, of, you could call it, the delegated sovereignty of man was cut short because of sin. Um, As one commentator noted, the ground originally produced good things naturally and abundantly for man to have for the taking. Now it produces thorns, weeds, and other harmful things naturally and abundantly. Whatever good things man now gets from the earth come only by tiresome effort. Extremes of heat and cold, poisonous plants and reptiles, earthquakes, Tornadoes, floods, hurricanes, disease, war, all these were released upon man after the fall. And the great reformer John Calvin said, The wild beasts ferociously attack us. Those who ought to be awed by our presence are dreaded by us. And some never obey us. Others can hardly be trained to submit. And they do us harm in various ways. As chapter 2 and verse 8 puts it, But now we do not see all things subjected to him, that is to mankind. That's not the way it is currently. However, uh, verse 9 helps us to see that God's original design for man will be fully realized through the person and work of Christ in the world to come. It helps us to understand that God's original intention for man will, will come to full fruition through the person of Christ, and this will be in the world to come. As one put it, the promise of sovereignty to man is fulfilled in Christ. It will ultimately be realized through him. So in verse 9, we notice that this fulfillment requires the death of the person of Christ. Our Lord's death on the the cross is is brought into prominence in verse 9. And it's brought before our minds in, in two basic ways. Number one, our Lord's humiliation, number one, that our Lord's humiliation culminated in his death on the cross. He was made lower than the angels for a little while, That refers to his humility, his becoming human, uh, his condescension to the human limitation. He subjected himself to misunderstanding and mocking and afflictions and at the hands of sinful men. And this uh, humility cultivated, excuse me, culminated in his death. And uh, and that was only for a period, a short period of time. Now that is over. So we see that our Lord's humility eventuated or culminated in his death on the cross. Um, and then secondly, we see that um, his death uh, leads to his exaltation or results in his exaltation. His exaltation was the consequence of his death and what it accomplished on the cross. So because of the suffering of death, he was crowned with glory and honor. So this intention of uh, man's delegated sovereignty over creation will only result by what, by what uh, the death of Christ accomplished. So for man's ordained purpose to be fulfilled, Christ had to die a, a sacrificial death on behalf of his people. 
And so this morning, our, our thinking will center around these two observations, really, about the atoning death of Christ and kind of some prolonged thought on what I've already made reference of. So number one, we see that his death was a necessary prelude to his exaltation. His death was a necessary prelude or the ground of his exaltation. The text says, Jesus, because of the suffering of death, was crowned with glory and honor. And I bring to your mind in this connection two factors that bear on the significance of his death. First of all, you notice here there's a, this may, may seem a little bit too much on the surface of, of things, but there's a clear identification of the one who is presented as suffering death. The, the text says, namely, Jesus. This is the first time the word Jesus occurs in the book of Hebrews. And this identification, I, I think, does serve various purposes. Number one, it fixes our minds on a particular historical setting within which this aspect of the unfolding drama of redemption took place. Simon Kistemaker said, by using the personal name Jesus, the author of the epistle draws attention to the historical setting of Jesus' suffering and death. We assume that the name, he writes, we assume that the name was vivid in the minds of the first readers of the epistle because of the steady preaching of the gospel. These readers were acquainted with the details of the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Secondly, this identification emphasizes the humanity, the humanity of the person of Christ. She shall bring forth a son, a human being, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. Um, one wrote, B.F. Westcott wrote, the personal name Jesus, which always fixes attention on the Lord's humanity occurs frequently in the epistle. And Peter O'Brien, it here, it here points to his humanity suffering and death, which made him seem for a while to be inferior to angels. Thirdly, it's a, a name that, that brings to mind his work as Savior, not only his humanity, but his particular work as Savior. She shall bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus. He shall save his people from their sins. Kistemaker wrote, the name Jesus calls to mind the concept of salvation. Jesus, the Savior, gained glory and honor for himself and life eternal for his people. Well, then a second factor which bears on the significance of our Lord's death it's the, the condition that he endured in connection with his death. The kind of death that he endured involved great suffering. The text says, because of the suffering of death, he was crowned with glory and honor. Um, O'Brien wrote, whenever the writer speaks of the death of Jesus, he used this verb to suffer and its derivatives. And it, it can mean the idea that the, either the suffering which consisted in death or the death he suffered. And they're very close in meaning to one another. So his dying included or consisted of suffering. Now, the, the suffering can be thought of, I believe, in two different ways or having, having two different dimensions to it. Number one, there, there was a physical dimension to his sufferings, a physical sense. Um, O'Brien says it points to the harsh reality of Jesus' violent death on a cross endured for the benefit of, his, of others. Now, we sang about it earlier this morning. Death by crucifixion was extremely painful, as you can imagine where, where Jesus was nailed to a cross. And on the cross for about six hours, from nine o'clock in the morning till three in the afternoon, the prophet tells us he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by a scourging we are healed. 
So one aspect of this death and this suffering is the physical dimension. And secondly, there was a, a spiritual slash emotional dimension connected with his sufferings. That This is what really puts his death in a unique category. Many of you are readers of church history. And there are, are martyrs and followers of Christ who had suffered tremendously just because they loved the Lord of glory. Many were killed in very violent and painful ways and burned at the stake. But, but his death is in a very unique category, uniquely and exclusively. It entailed receiving the full measure of God's wrath for the sins of all the people whom the Father had given to him. Again, the prophet says, Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death, and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So this dimension of his suffering is seen actually down in verse 17, where it says to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Propitiation is a term that emphasizes the turning away of the wrath of God on the basis of effectual sacrifice on the cross. So no small part of our Lord's sufferings, they had to consist of him being an infinitely holy person, yet bearing the full measure of God's wrath against the sins that he bore for his people. And this was to satisfy the demands of justice. So the suffering of death has a physical dimension, has a spiritual dimension. And we can add, we see also it's presented as a necessary prelude to exaltation. We've touched on this. It's a necessary ground or preparation for his exaltation. Because of the suffering of death, he was crowned with glory and honor. He was rewarded, so to speak, with glory and honor. He was crowned with glory and honor by the Father. Uh, the basic idea of glory is splendor or brightness or radiance. And it's widened to denote the glory, the majesty, or the sublimity of God. And it also applies, as you know, to the person of Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we behold his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And the night before our Lord was crucified, in his high priestly prayer, he says, And now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. And, and we see also in that prayer what his true desire was for the people whom the Father had given him. Father, I desire that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am in order that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me for thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. Then to his disciples he said, Truly I say to you, you have followed me in the regeneration which the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. And then speaking of his return, he says... It says, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And then we also see the term honor, that is to be highly respected or revered. In our Lord's first coming, he was not highly respected. He was not revered. He was misunderstood. He was mocked. He was derided. He was beaten. He was rejected. He was executed in a most humiliating and public way. But when he returns, every single person in the universe will acknowledge the reality of his lordship because the Bible says this, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, also we notice in this connection that there's a pattern in Scripture, therefore, that suffering 
and glory go together. First is the suffering, then comes the glory. As others have pointed out, first comes the crown, then comes the cross. Westcott wrote, The endurance of the uttermost penalty of sin was the ground of our Lord's exaltation in his humanity. And the Apostle Paul put it like this, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, therefore, because he became obedient to death on a cross, therefore, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name. So first comes the suffering, then comes the glory. Now, as suffering is followed by glory as a pattern in the life of our Lord, it is also with those who would take up their cross and be followers of him. First Peter 4.13 says, to the, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of his glory, you may also rejoice with exaltation. Paul put it like this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. So in the first place, we see that his death is presented as a necessary prelude to glory. He was crowned with glory and honor. Secondly, we, we see here that his death is presented as the goal of his humiliation. The goal of his humiliation. He was made a little lower than the angels for the purpose of tasting death for all his people. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now the text emphasizes the, the condition which accompanying our Lord's death, physical, spiritual suffering, now that he might taste death for everyone. So the suffering of death is presented here as the ground or the basis of his exaltation. He was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering that consisted in his death. Now his death is presented as the goal of his abasement or the goal of his humiliation. He's been made a little while, excuse me, for a little while lower than the angels so that for the purpose of tasting death for everyone. William Lane wrote the purpose of Jesus' abasement to the human conditions expressed by the clause that he might taste death for everyone. Uh, the words of this part of the text bring into view three realities related to his, his death, three realities that are related to his death. First of all, he really died. He experienced death in full measure. To taste death means to experience its reality and its being. Peter O'Brien wrote, The idiom to taste death means not simply to take a sip, but to experience the painful reality of death. The writer uses the Semitism to allude to the harsh reality of the violent death on the cross that Jesus endured for the benefit of others. Secondly, we see that those who are presented as being the benefit of our Lord's death here is, is everyone. Not every man, but everyone. Um, which begs the question, to whom does this refer? He tasted death for everyone. Well, I believe the context supplies the answer. It's not everyone without exception, but the many sons who are brought to glory in the very next verse and those who inherit salvation in verse 14 of chapter 1. John Brown kind of expands on this. He says, the word in the original is not every man or every human being. It's everyone, a word that naturally leads you to ask everyone of whom. And when you look into the context, you find a particular class of persons mentioned, the heirs of salvation, the many sons of God, the sanctified ones, the brethren of Christ, the children of Christ, who God had given him. Well, thirdly, we notice here that the death of Christ that he endured, it's presented as a function of God's grace. His death is presented as a, an operation or a function of of God's grace, that by the grace of God, 
he might taste death for everyone. No, we're aware generally, of course, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. But, but here, our Lord's death and, and, and everything that it accomplished is presented as, a, as an operation of grace, or it flows from grace. Now, the term, there may be more thoughts that would come to your mind here, but um, the, the term grace as it relates to salvation brings to our mind at least three things, at least three things. Number one, it highlights the disposition of the being of God as a gracious person. William Lane wrote that this occurred by the grace of God has in view the gracious disposition of God, who addresses man's failure to achieve his destiny by the provision of a redeemer through whose death many will be led to the experience of sonship and glory. So it draws our attention to the disposition of the being of God from whom all this activity flows. Secondly, it brings out the initiative of God and salvation, the necessity that there is divine initiative of salvation is to occur. That is absolutely essential. Philip Hughes put it like this, and all that Jesus has done for us is by the grace of God, the initiative which procured our redemption is God's, not ours. Were it not for the priority of divine grace, we should be without help and without hope. This truth, that is divine initiative, is pressed home by Paul in a threefold insistence. While we were helpless, while we were sinners, while we were enemies, God reconciled us to, the, to himself by the death of his son. And by John's reminder that in this was love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the satisfaction for our sins. And again, John Brown wrote, when Jesus in his mortal nature died in the room of all his people, he did so by the grace of God. It's impossible to trace the appointment of this mysterious sacrifice to any principle in the divine mind, but free, sovereign mercy. Well, thirdly, the term grace draws our attention not only to divine initiative, and this one is probably the first thing that came to your mind when I mentioned grace, unmerited favor or undeserved favor. It means that salvation is a gracious gift uh, apart from or excludes, completely excludes our works. Uh, the moment works enter the picture insofar as grace is concerned, uh, then in, insofar as salvation is concerned, then grace exits completely. But according to the Bible, um, all of our works are regarded as filthy rags when it relates to salvation and being accepted by the being of God. That their only function is condemnation, not, com- not, not to commend us to God. So we, we rightly glory in the reality of, of God's grace, unmerited favor. Um, I, I do think it's helpful in, in thinking about the concept of, of grace, if you pull in from the, the greater witness of Scripture, to think of it as a what I would call a substitutionary concept. And, and what I mean by that is when we think of grace, we think of unmerited favor. Um, or of unmerited favor, but that is in the place of something else. It is in the place of merited wrath. And it's helpful to put the two together, I think, to really get a a full, complete picture of the idea of grace. And even more, to to really glory in the reality of grace, it's helpful to understand that it's unmerited favor in the place of what we know we truly deserve. And and that's that's the area that really causes us to rejoice and glory in, in grace because we realize in our better moments what we truly deserve is not grace. What we truly deserve is not mercy. What we truly deserve is the eternal wrath of God. Now, I, I can't convince you that you deserve wrath and you can't convince me. 
I mean, I can say that, you can say that. It has to be a work of the Spirit in the soul. But the more that we embrace the reality that we, in fact, are vile sinners, what we really deserve is eternal punishment, and we're persuaded of that, then we begin to glory in the reality of grace. In fact, one hymn writer put it like this, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I think Newton actually believed that. I think he believed he was a vile wretch. And I think the reason we sing that is we know it's true of ourselves also. We know that we're all great sinners. And we know the only way we're reconciled with the being of God is not how wonderful we are. It's completely on the work of another. And that is a function of the grace of God. And the death of Christ and the suffering of Christ should be thought of as emanating and flowing from a gracious disposition of God. It's undeserved. It's unmerited. It flows from the merciful character of God. Of the being of God. So we see here there's a necessary prelude to his exaltation. He was crowned with glory and honor because of what he accomplished on the cross. And, and also his death is presented as the goal of humiliation or the goal of his abasement. And it's also a function, it flows from the gracious character of the being of God. And let us pray, shall we? Father, we do thank you this this day for your many, many kindnesses to our soul. We thank you for the reality of the gospel. We thank you for your son and what he was pleased to accomplish for us on the cross. We thank you that left to ourselves, we would be lost. We would be lost forever. We thank you that without divine initiative, we never would have repented. We never would have responded to the gospel. So we thank you for the reality and the glory of your marvelous, kind disposition to us. We thank you that you are the one who began the good work in us, and therefore you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So I pray that you would apply these truths to our own soul and our own heart for your honor and your glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to ask the brothers who are serving in the Lord's table if you would come forward at this time. The confession that we find very helpful, the London Baptist Confession, has words related to the Lord's Supper. Let's say the Supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him the same night wherein he was betrayed to be observed in his churches unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance and showing forth the sacrifice of himself in his death, confirmation of the faith of believers in all the benefits thereof, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe to him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other. In this ordinance, Christ is not offered up to his Father, nor any real sacrifice made at all for remission of sin of the quick or the dead, but only a memorial of that one offering up of himself by himself upon the cross once for all in a spiritual oblation of all possible praise unto God for the same. And Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it 
and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And let us pray. Father, we thank you that we can have some prolonged thought on what your Holy Son has done for us. We thank you for the fact and the reality and the glory of his suffering in our stead. We thank you that he bore the totality of your wrath against sin. We thank you that your justice was fully, completely satisfied in his work on our behalf. We thank you that we can glory in the cross of Christ. And we do pray as we uh, approach the observing of the Lord's table, that you would cause us to, to glory and rejoice in what you have done for us forever in your Son. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a few thoughts as we approach the observing of the Lord's table. This is uh, for Christian believers. Uh, so if you are here this morning, and in your heart of hearts, you know that you have repented of your sins. You know that you are completely relying on the person of Christ as your Savior. You, you know that you are accepted by him on the basis not of anything that you have done, but on the basis of his work, then you are, are more than welcome to join with us. And, and as we observe the Lord's table, we want to focus as much as we're, we're able to do so on this, this thought of him receiving the punishment that our own sins have merited and deserved. And, and words like redemption would speak of being purchased from the marketplace of sin or reconciliation to the being of God through the death of his son or the propitiation, having his wrath turned away. These are the kinds of words that we want to kind of embrace in our minds and, and glory in what he has been pleased to do for us. So let us consider these kinds of things and just look to him one more time in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your Son, and as we partake of these elements, we pray it would redound to thy glory. We, we realize they are symbolic, but we do pray as we are seeking to be pleasing to thee that you would use this for your glory. We pray that it would strengthen our, our hearts and increase our, our devotion and our love for the person of Christ, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.